Hello, folks. Pull up a chair and join us on this adventure we call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Pudd. And I am still Tane Kell. You know, we're coming off another great NJO, new judge orientation, Tane. We had nine new Superior Court judges. Yeah, it was a great time had by all. Uh, shout out to the new judges, Wade. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> all right. So as a part of that NJO process, we provide new judges with trial outlines, sentencing outlines, probation revocation outlines, etc. That's right. Some of those are essentially scripts, which contain the actual words a judge should say during certain portions of those proceedings. And then some are more like outlines or bullet points or uh, citations to cases and things like that for the judge to consider. We realized, Tane, with, during NJO that we have not discussed sentencing in a while dun, dun, dun. on this wonderful podcast, the Good yeah. Judgment Podcast. And it might be a good time to just have a general discussion about sentencing, separate and apart from the other types of hearings in criminal cases. Yeah, and just a reminder, we did publish an entire series on how to try a criminal case back in the early days of the podcast, one of the earliest series we ever did. Uh, And I think we published that way back in 2019, B.C., before COVID. Uh, It's hard to believe it's been that long, isn't it, Wade? That's true. You know, we've been blessed to continue this podcast for a very long time. Tell the folks where they can find the episode outlined for this podcast and those other ones, too. Sure, Wade. You can always reach out at goodjudgepod.com. And if you have ideas or topics or anything else that can help us sustain this train that's on wobbly wheels, (laughs) share those with us via email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. All right, Wade. Well, with all of that being said and all of the preliminaries out of the way, let's talk about sentencing. You know, sentencing tain can happen in several different ways. It could be the result of a guilty verdict by the jury, or it could even be the result of some sort of plea or guilty plea being entered. Yeah, it could be in connection with something like a Nolo Contendere plea or an Alford plea. I mean, there are all sorts of variations. So we're hoping that everybody who's listening to our podcast at least has a working understanding what a Nolo Contendere plea involves. And if you don't, it's in the outline. That's right. But let's quickly touch on a plea under North Carolina versus Alford. Let's just remind the people what that does. Sure. And, you know, at at the risk of sounding like the people we always say we hate and talking about an Alford plea or a Feeblefester plea or whatever it might be, an Alford plea essentially allows the defendant to remove the risk of a trial without actually admitting his or her guilt. It's treated as a guilty plea for all reasons relevant to the court. That is, you know, things like prior conviction and 404B uh, type situations, uh, probation, probation revocation, that sort of thing. But it also allows some defendants to enter a plea without having to actually admit guilt, which could impact a civil case. Or in some cases, it just has to do with their personal pride or, you know, not wanting to say in front of mama or somebody That's uh, exactly what I was significant about other that, uh, yeah, I really did what I'd say I didn't do. Uh, yeah. You yeah. don't want to tell your mom you actually did that thing. No, no. Dumb. So Tane, I generally accept offered pleas. When you were judging, did you generally accept offered pleas? Yeah, I generally did. For a while, I, I had sort of this thought that if you were getting first offender treatment, that maybe there might be some reasons that an offered plea wouldn't be right, or there might be some special circumstance. But I didn't have any general rule about rejecting, which is good, right, Wade? Because we're supposed to exercise our discretion and you know, go through those sorts of things with each and every case being different, right? The refusal to exercise discretion is an abuse of discretion. That's the, that's exactly, gosh, <laughs> wait, I couldn't have said it better myself. So now with offer pleas, just so that you're clear, it is treated as a guilty plea for all practical purposes as far as from the legal standpoint side. Right. So and, and I would, and I would tell the defendant that because I didn't want the defendant to misunderstand. And a lot of times, you know, Lawyers would use this whole offered plea idea as something to say, well, you don't really have to say you did this. You're just pleading guilty in form or whatever. And it's like, no, man, this is a guilty plea. Yeah, and it's going to be used against you in the future, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. So let's start with something with with sentencing that is being scheduled in conjunction with the plea agreement, Tane. Okay. That's really one of the ones we dealt with the most, right? It, it is. And this is going to be a longer event in the terms of the court time than the court's interaction with the defendant. Now, if there was a trial, Tane, what? 
yeah, I mean, the court doesn't the, the court doesn't really have to following a trial discuss with the defendant his or her waiver of rights and that sort of thing because at that by that point the defendant has already exercised all of his rights. Right. So we you know we don't have to go through as many things after a trial as we do uh, during a plea. So let's talk about the different kinds of plea agreements because I think that some people they do it the way they do it in their circuit and they may not have been exposed to other kinds of plea agreements. And we also call them different things like with everything else we do in different circuits. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit of that. So I guess there are probably, there are probably other variations on this, but there are charge bargaining plea agreements without any recommendations as to a sentence. There are open pleas also known as blind pleas where the defendant is pleading to all the charges in the indictment or accusation without any sort of protection, I guess, in air quotes, of any sort of agreement as to the charge or the sentences being imposed. And then finally, a true negotiated plea agreement. I'm sure there's another fancy word for that. But under the negotiated plea agreement, I think that's probably what people typically think more of what a, a stereotypical plea agreement is. That is, there's an agreement as to which charges that are being pled to and the potential sentence to be imposed. Yeah. And, you know, some people may be sitting out there saying, well, why in the world would a defendant go through the process of pleading guilty if he or she's not going to know what the outcome is going to be? Well, it may be a circumstance where they haven't really been offered anything and they'd rather take their chances with what the judge might give them than what might happen pleading to, you know, aggravated child molestation in front of a jury and, you know, and then having to explain to the judge after going through the whole trial process and hearing all the ugly evidence, why it ought to be a probation case instead of a, exactly. you know, 20 year sentence or 25 year sentence. So I guess there is one other type of plea agreement that, that has become very much in vogue in my division of Superior Court in Columbia. County, and that's I, most people call it a cap agreement thing where they say, okay, we agree there'll be no more than, say, three years of incarceration, if any. And then that also would be a form of a plea agreement as well. Right. And, and, and yeah, and then the proceedings on that go the same way as a, as a negotiated plea agreement would, but they're just arguing about sentence up to and including the cap. The reason we are discussing all these different types of agreements and kind of rehashing something that we discussed back in that How to Try a Criminal Case series is that there is an overarching principle that we want to make sure that everyone's aware of, Tane, and particularly our judges. Yeah, so speaking to our brethren and sistern on the bench here, uh, if you, judge, are not going to follow the plea agreement, the judge is under an affirmative obligation to notify the defendant of the judge's intent not to accept or follow the agreement, and then to allow the defendant to withdraw the plea. That's Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.10. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. Do you think a uniform rule counts as a statute? I mean, I think in this case, it's it's a pretty hard Do you get one wing, rule, maybe? So, yeah, maybe you get a couple of feathers, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But that requirement only applies, that requirement that you just talked about to notify the defendant only applies when the defendant enters a negotiated plea where which the court intends to reject. Right. There's a quote from a case. So, Tane, as to an open plea or what some people call a blind plea, there's no negotiation. Right. There, there's no agreed upon recommendation. Both parties are free to argue whatever they want. The judge in, enters a sentence anywhere that is within the statutory parameters of whatever that statute is. Right. And in that case, the defendant has no right to withdraw based upon the judge's sentencing decision. Like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, you know, the, the defendant doesn't get to withdraw then if they've entered an open plea, if they haven't negotiated sentence. So I guess it would apply to a cap sentence and to a negotiated, a, a true negotiated sentence agreement. Yeah. If the, if, the judge, if the judge blows through the cap and says, no, not that five you agreed to 20, then yeah, yeah that's then, a problem. Yeah. Or, or or if the judge just says, I'm going to reject the plea agreement. I mean, the judge doesn't have to say what I would sentence you to uh, if it's not an open plea. Correct. In the sentencing outlines that I use and that we provide to our new judges, we suggest that the hearing begin with the calling of the case, putting the style of the case on the record, talk about who's present, and then getting the following issues, and I'm using air quotes again, on the record. I don't know what sound effect the air quotes need, but on the record. (laughs) Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Tell the folks what we try to get up on the record. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, a factual basis for the plea. Folks, this is important. I think a lot of folks blow through uh, the factual basis part 
and and it's it's really important for you judges out there and and you lawyers too who don't want your pleas to blow up later on. Uh, secondly, uh, announce the sentence recommendation if any, so the parties let you know what that uh, sentence recommendation is going to be. Clarifying whether there is a recidivist notice or whether it is being waived by the prosecutor. Now, again, this is something people blow through a lot of times, and this is really important for the defendant to understand and for the judge to understand because you have some some requirements on you. Number four, any lesser included offenses or things that are really uh, lesser, things that are really recognized by law as lesser included offenses. <laughs> yeah, there's some that are simply not. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and, and if not, whether there's a waiver by the defendant of having an indictment or an accusation redrawn. So in other words, if you're going to use those, you need to to find out whether he's waving that or she's waving that. Uh, and then finally, whether there are any offenses that merge. And Wade, why don't you just talk about merger? I here? refuse to discuss <laughs> merger anymore. I'm, the top of my head is going to come off if I talk merger. But you anymore. were the merger magician, yeah, Wade. Yeah, that was not intentional, I promise you. <laughs> so let's talk Let's talk about those five preliminary matters sort of individually. Let's talk about the factual basis. Now, Tane, in my court, I usually ask the parties if they stipulate there is a sufficient factual basis for this plea. Now, I still come back and let them talk about the case. The thing that got me worried about this was that if you accidentally did not discuss, I don't know, venue right, as a part of the factual basis, I don't want to set up something where you know the law changes and all of a sudden somebody can set us out of plea. I, I think that's a good policy to follow, Wade, although I didn't really do exactly that, but I, I think that's a good policy to follow because we do so many of these that people just, they omit things sometimes. I mean, they, they, do. They're not, they don't mean to, but they just do. But even with the stipulation, I still have the prosecutor, quote, tell me about the case. I mean, so I'll understand what's going on. All right. As to the Senate's recommendation. Now, for the reasons we discussed earlier, Tane, you, you may have heard the Senate's recommendation while they were off the record or whatever, and everybody may be kind of going forward. I want to make sure that recommendation's on the record and, and make sure that it's clear what the recommendation is or is not. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with something I've heard you say before is, you know, you want to know what the plea is going to be. You're not necessarily interested in all the details of oh what, they're, what they're going to talk about on uh, on probation. So, Tane, <laughs> I mean, it took me a, a few negotiate, a, a few rejected plea agreements to, to, to make this message clear. I really didn't want the parties to negotiate whether the community service was going to be done at the landfill or at the library or whatever. <laughs> well, I there just, was an Eighth Amendment problem there to begin I, with. I just but. don't want to have a whole conversation about that. <laughs> right. So I just said, you know what? How about we, you know how to avoid all these rejected plea agreements? Talk about terms of probation left to the discretion of the court. Hey, that's the plea agreement. Therefore, like, I can go anywhere within reason. Seems like a great idea to me, Wade. Well, let's talk next about the recidivist notice, Wade, because I think this is an important thing that, as I said earlier, sometimes gets blown through. If the state doesn't intend to waive any pretrial recidivist notice, the judge absolutely needs to know that fact, and it needs to be on the record uh, to ensure that the defendant acknowledges that it's not being waived, because there are some obvious ramifications yeah. to not waiving that. I don't want to go off the rails and talk about 17107A and C and, and all the different things. And we talked about it in a previous uh, podcast. We have. But only that it dictates that the maximum sentence must be imposed under subsection A. And the court does not have the option to suspend or probate any portion of that max sentence. Normally, you would have the option to suspend or probate any portion. But if you get C notice... Any time that's in confinement must be, as the as the cool kids say, to the door without parole. And so it doesn't mean you have to impose the maximum sentence. And I don't want to get lost on this this subtopic, but it, you know, Tane, what can't you do with a life sentence? You can't probate any portion of it. So if the maximum sentence is life, you have to impose life. If it's done without parole... I've heard people say, well, judge, that's life without parole. No, that's a term of art. Mm -hmm. Life without parole is a term of art. It is life. You are not eligible for parole is different from a sentence of life without parole. That's exactly right. And interestingly, folks, if counsel doesn't clarify with the defendant that recidivism notice is not being waived as a part of the agreement, it is per se ineffective assistance of counsel. And 
you're going to see that case again. Yeah, we've got the case uh, highlighted on the outline that you can find at goodjudgepod.com. Yeah, and as Wade and I have said on many occasions, there are a lot of things I don't want to get reversed on. I really don't want to get reversed on anything, but I sure don't want to get it reversed on a negotiated plea. Yeah, that would be that would be <laughs> that's embarrassing. Not awesome. Yeah, not awesome. Lesser included offenses. This is this is probably highly technical for some folks, but there are times when the parties agree to a plea agreement that they are going to quote unquote plead to a lesser included charge. Well, for example, reckless driving is not a lesser included offense of DUI. Right. So it you gets have reduced to, to DUI sometimes, it, it, but no, it gets reduced to reckless. Yeah. DUI reckless, gets, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you read DUI reduced to reckless. But, but you're having to waive any defect in the indictment or accusation that brought you there. If the thing that you're pleading to is not technically a, really a lesser included offense, just, it just cuts off an entire line of appellate argument one day. Just it's much easier just to put on the record. Are you waiving any defect with with the indictment if that's not actually a lesser included offense? Yes, judge. And then we carry on. They they talk like that. Yes, they judge. do. Yeah, it's so weird. Um, and, and there's an important note too. The court doesn't have any authority to allow the defendant to enter a plea to uncharged lesser included offenses, quote unquote, without the consent of the state. In other words, you can't just go ahead and impose a reckless. Uh, well, it's not really. But anyway, you, yeah, can, yeah. you can't really find a, a, a lesser included offense and sentence the defendant to that unless the state consents. And then finally, don't forget to talk about merger because it applies to a guilty plea. But I refuse to talk any further about merger. The, I've just kind of drawn a line in the sand. Only thing we're saying is it applies to guilty pleas. Don't it, forget that. It does. And and, you, and, 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 and and a lot of times, look, folks think I, I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but folks think that if it's a guilty plea, that takes care of any issues of merger. And it absolutely does not. So you judge and you prosecutors out there listening and you defense attorneys out there listening always need to look at this merger issue. Now, don't forget at this point, after you've gotten those preliminaries done, find out if there's a victim who wishes to be heard. You're under an obligation to do that, but it's also the right thing to do. Um, When it's obvious there's not another person in the courtroom, that's great and all. But, um, the appellate courts don't can't see what you see. So how about painting the picture and say, hey, I don't see anybody else here. Mr. Prosecutor, is there or Ms. Prosecutor, is there a victim who wishes to be hurt? Well, and technically you're supposed to find out as the judge in the case and also as the prosecutor has an obligation to inform the victim that a proceeding is being is is taking place on that case. So that may be the question you want to ask. So finally, we're through with all that preliminary stuff, Tane. We've gotten we've, we've checked all of our boxes. We've gotten all that done. So time to get into a dialogue with the defendant you use that word the the colloquy word you say it so well yeah colloquy uh i struggle with that word sometimes (laughs) um i think it's it's perfect because it only applies i mean like that's the only time i ever use that word is that it's a colloquy with the defendant about the plea and you and i do our pleas very similarly always did and and um we we do some things that maybe aren't necessarily required but we think are good practices and so tell the people why we do that thing well because again i don't want to see a (laughs) uh, a guilty plea uh, a negotiated guilty plea get overturned and get sent back to me either on appeal or habeas but truthfully the, the reason that i do it is this um it, it, it makes a big difference to me and to you, I know, Wade. Um, when you're doing a pl- guilty plea, people's constitutional rights are involved. Like, it is chock full of <laughs> constitutional rights when you're doing a guilty plea. And I just think the defendant has a right to know those rights and know what rights are being waived. And so we go over those things because I think it's important. And it doesn't, contrary to what some of my colleagues might say, it doesn't take that much time to ensure that people's constitutional rights are being observed. So let's talk about some of the things that that we do in going through and, this. And, and, and you'll see that we have an outline that, that the sentencing sort of colloquy outline that the reason we do it this way is because we'll do 10 of these, 20 of these, 30 of these a day. And it's easy to forget whether this transcript, I asked this defendant what his education level was or whatever. That's right. But I I, I tried never to vary from what I said. Even the same words came out of my mouth at every plea so that I would do it. You know what else that does, Ting? All the other people who are in the courtroom who have different jobs at different points in the proceedings, they know when you say those words, they need to start paying attention. Yeah, you're right. They know when to tune in and tune out. All right. I always administer an oath. Do you administer an oath? I did. Yeah. I I would always put the defendant under oath so that, you know, just because if I asked him something and it came back later on, I didn't know that. Well, you under oath said you knew that, you know, so. 
And second, I ask the defendant if he or she is satisfied with counsel. The The question really is, I guess it partially sort of addresses any claims of ineffective assistance. If you didn't tell the judge you were dissatisfied, now you're dissatisfied with 32 things on in habeas, then we can talk about that. Absolutely. I, I get them to actually admit they are in fact guilty of what they are charged with. I did the same, yeah. The dialogue then with me sort of ventures into a place that's not purely yes or no answers. I, you know, what sort of work do you do? Where did you go to high school? Uh, do you have children? Whatever. Yeah, and there's a good reason for that, isn't there, Wade? Well, there is from my opinion because we've had people who have alleged that their that their plea colloquy was um, simply yes or no questions, and they couldn't read and they couldn't understand. They just had a 50-50 shot, and they guessed right each time. Or that they didn't speak fluent English or that they had some sort of incompetence or were under the influence. I had one, one time they were allegedly under the influence of narcotics. And I said, well, you know, when I asked you those questions that didn't involve a yes or no answer, you came out with coherent answers. Um, I, I mean, I've stopped the plea before. Sure, I'm sure to. you have too. When said, this person does not understand English well enough for me to continue with this plea. Then you ask the question about the ability to understand English. Any prior mental health diagnosis that usually takes me where I need to go? Are you presently under medication and all that? Confirm that whether there's present impairment. And then confirm the decision to plead guilty is not the product of any sort of threats or force or duress. Mm -hmm. I said freely and voluntarily made by you, but I mean, same thing. Sure. Yeah. The maximum minimum sentences need to be on the record, even if you know them, even if everybody in the room knows them, even if you may have casually brushed, pa brushed past it at some point. I, I do the minimum maximums. And then if you got to ask whether the defendant is, is requesting first offender, let's stop there for a minute. When you ask somebody if they're requesting first offender and you go through whatever you talk about about first offender, does that mean you have to give the person first offender? Absolutely not. It's, it's always in the discretion of the trial judge as to whether to give it, but you do need to know whether they're asking for it or whether they might be eligible for it. And you have a statutory obligation to ask that question. That's exactly right. Um, and you cannot impose, this is maybe news to people, you cannot impose a first offender sentence without the defendant's consent. Yeah, because right. there is a hammer to first offender sentence. That is that you could be sentenced to the full balance of the maximum that could have been imposed. They don't have to sign up for that. And I had a number of people who rejected it, even though they were eligible for it, because they knew they were not likely than, to successfully, not likely to successfully complete. Yeah, that was exactly <laughs> the phraseology that was used. You have to ask somebody if there's a citizen of the United States, not their, that they're a citizen, but this is how. You get to the whole incarcer incarceration thing, incarceration thing. Thank you with your Spanish. Si. Um, <laughs> and, Seventh grade. And it also, uh, it is insufficient to say, do you know this might impact your immigration status? If you know it is an automatic deportation offense, that is insufficient. The case law is in uh, the... Say, say that again, Wade, because I, I think I think that's important. It is insufficient to simply say, are you aware that this a plea to this offense might impact your immigration status? If it is something that is known to you at the time of sentencing to be an automatic deportation offense, you are under an obligation to tell them that. But Wade, how am I supposed to know what federal law is? Well, so... Sometimes people talk to us like that <laughs> when they're really whiny and stuff. We have it in the outline. We have it in our sentencing outline for judges. And, you know, it's not secret. Parties could have it. But there's also these crazy things called federal statute. <laughs> where, where would I find those? <laughs> in the federal book. I mean, you know. Right. Um, those big green books on the shelf. You still have an obligation to know to, to ask the defendant whether he or she has a weapons carry license. I'm not sure that's all that germane anymore. With the open carry, Georgia become an open carry statute, but it's still a statutory requirement. And then you go through what some people call the Boykin rights, but Tane, as we have talked several times, if you just do what's in Boykin, you have not followed the uniform superior court rules on this. Right. Essentially, Boykin is about three of the, I don't know, eight or nine rights that you have to go over with the defendant under the uh, under the statutory and, and or under our rules, under the uniform superior court rules. So let's just Let's just go through those rights that a defendant is waiving. So the right to a speedy and public trial by jury, that's being waived, folks, because they're, they're, they're pleading out. They're not going to trial. Uh, their right to a presumption of innocence. Again, they're saying they're guilty. They're not taking that. Uh, a right to confront witnesses. A right to subpoena and present evidence. 
a right to the assistance of a lawyer. Now you say, well, they're standing there with a lawyer. Right. But they have a right to have one at trial. And if they don't know they have that right, you know, that's problematic. Waving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A right to testify and a right to remain silent and not testify. So those are the rights that you, that judges are required to under the uniform superior court rules. And I think this tracks in the other classes of court. I haven't checked all of them, but I think they track. Yeah, I believe it does. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Now, written plea forms. There are certain of our colleagues, not only in Superior Court, but in other classes of court, who firmly believe that, well, they signed the form. (laughs) Okay. A, how many people have you seen who could not read? Yeah. Or that would admit to you they could not read. Or couldn't read English. And at the same time, the cases all say that Forms can be a part of the colloquy. They can be a part of the record-making process, but they can't be the sole record-making process of the defendant's knowing an intelligent, voluntary waiver of rights. Yeah, I mean, you can't have somebody come out here and go, sign here, sign here, sign here. Okay, <laughs> thank you for playing. <laughs> we <laughs> well, have some nice parting gifts for you, including probation and some jail time. So I, I think it's best if we read this quote. We believe the best way to ensure that a defendant fully appreciates the right he has chosen to relinquish and that trial judges fully understand their duty in this process is for the trial court to address each factor individually and on the record. By doing so, a trial court can likely avoid the time and expense of another trial. And there's a site to that case. It, it couldn't be much clearer. Right. And that's the kicker at the end, right? Yeah. Avoid another trial. <laughs> now, there are people in other classes of court, Dane, and we have a lot of friends in other classes of court who listen to this foolishness. We love y'all. Thank you for being here. Um, that say, well, we take um, pleas and abstentia. Well, their rules say some version of this. Right. You shall go over individually and on the record the the rights that are being waived. I don't know how you you, you take a plea and abstentia. I will not take a plea in abstention, Superior Court, yeah. even if it's a misdemeanor offense or whatever. I, I just don't do it. I refuse to do it because I think the rules require me to do this. Yeah, and I think with our uh, new setup with the Department of Corrections, where they'll allow people to appear before us by video, a lot of the reasons for doing those things have gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, for, really, to clear unless it. they're a truck driver in Kentucky, which that's where they all apparently are. Okay, well, come on down. Exactly. <laughs> Now, one other we thing. We got a Bucky's here. Now. We got two of them now. I know. Have you ever been to Bucky's? I've been to Bucky's. It's like it's like going to heaven. It's, it's like really going amazing. The entry gates to heaven. Yeah, and it really yeah, is. It's just amazing. You well, can get a hat and a sandwich. But and- I'm gonna, but I'm gonna tell you one thing. If you got a nut allergy, don't even pull up at the pumps, yeah. man. Yeah, keep you, going. It's gonna knock you down. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. I don't know how we got off on Bucky's, but all right. Once we've gone over. <laughs> One more thing. Sorry. If the defendant is pleading to a sex offense, Tane, yes, you have to tell them that they are required to register as a sex offender, and they need to acknowledge that as a as a condition. There has always been this long question, Tane, of what is a collateral consequence to your plea as a direct? Uh, what is a direct consequence? The state. I think even the appellate court struggle with exactly what's collateral and what's not, but they've made it clear we have to talk about immigration. We have to talk about sex offenses. Exactly. There are two that we know for sure, and that's immigration and sex offenses. So in our in our imagined scenario, we finished talking to the defendant. Now we I'm going to turn to defense counsel and ask some questions. Did you do some of the same things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a little short colloquy with them as well. Counsel, they, for, for example, counsel, are you aware of any reason that I shouldn't accept this plea or that it should not go forward? 
Confirm that the plea agreement's the one that they agreed to. Yeah. And then finally ask if there's anything else you want to tell me. This is where the family members or friends or, or character witnesses or whatever, whatever the presentation the defense counsel intends to make needs to happen here. Right. Then, and this is easy to forget, Payne, there's one more thing you need to do. Ask the defendant, hey, man, is there anything you would like to say? Yeah. I mean, it's easy to forget that after you hear this long presentation by the lawyer and defendants nodding along or crying or whatever. Ask them, and, but tell them there's nothing you have to say. Is there anything you want to say? And be patient. And this is their, this is their, this is their merry-go-round ride. Let them say what they need to say sure. to a certain degree. Yeah, and their lawyers usually go, "No, you don't have anything no, to you, say." We're good, Judge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you make that finding on the record, Tane. Right. Uh, at that point in time, you let the parties know whether you intend to reject or accept the plea agreement, uh, giving the defendant the opportunity to withdraw if you're going to reject it. So that you need to be explicit about that. And again, folks understand because you're not supposed to, as a judge, enter into the negotiation phase of the plea. This is not a time for you to say, well, I don't like this part of the plea, but I'm OK with this part. You accept or reject and everybody moves on. And then finally, you need to make a finding on the record, factual basis for the plea as stipulated, this is what I say, that the defendant understands the nature of the crime, the consequences of the plea, and that the defendant has knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily decided to enter this plea. The court intends to accept and follow the plea agreement. That's, I mean, that's, you can tell I kind of say that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked earlier that, that sentencing can come be the product of a plea. We've talked to that about that exhaustively, but it could be a part of a product of a trial, right? Tane? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's a little different, but there are a lot of the same elements and, and, and certainly the same constitutional rights involved. So we're going to talk about some of those things. Um, and, and one of those is Wade, I think this is where you wanted to talk about merger, right? That's one <laughs> I of the things used to talk about merger, <laughs> but following your guilty, your guilty verdict, jury leaves, you've polled the jury, whatever. Right. These are the things you need. Here's your mini checklist before you start imposing a sentence. And let me ask you something, Wade, because I don't think we've talked, you and I've talked about this before. Did you normally do sentencing immediately after the jury enters its verdict, unless somebody tells you there's a reason not to? Exactly. I, I, I did. Usually I had everybody I needed there, victim, family of the defendant, et cetera. Um, and that's the question. That's not would, always true. But but that was a question I would always ask is, is there any reason that we cannot proceed with sentencing at this time? I mean, the defendant may say, I've got an out-of-town witness I, that isn't here, that, or you know, whatever it might be, and you determine whether to go forward. But you don't have to. You no. don't have to do that. But, you no. know, you absolutely can't. Yeah. So go through, Tane, tell the people what, after your guilty verdict, what the issues are that you, you need to address. Sure. Uh, first, as the judge, you need to look at what the defendant, you know, what the jury has just found the defendant guilty of and determine whether there's a merger issue. We're not going to go into that, but you, that's where, that's the point at which it happens. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> then you've got to verify the maximum sentence that could be imposed on each of the counts. So you might want to go over that with counsel just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Determine if recidivism notice is an issue, if that's been already been issued by uh, the district attorney. Determine if the victim or wants to be heard or if there's a statement, uh, an impact statement that wants to be read. Um, allow the introduction of evidence relating to prior criminal history, what they would call aggravation, evidence and aggravation. Um, allow the defense counsel to be heard on sentencing, things like mitigation. Um, and uh, allow for the presentation of any defense witnesses relevant to sentencing, the mitigation evidence, and then allow the defendant to speak on sentencing if the defendant desires. And so it, it's really another little sort of back and forth like you would have at a trial. You know, you let each one have, I would, I always let them have a little opening statement on sentencing if they wanted. And then the state's presentation of evidence and aggravation, defense presentation of uh, mitigation evidence, um, and then... What else did you do, Wade? So let me ask you this before I go there. Did you ever have a uh, prosecutor say, we get last word, we had burden of proof? Yes. In sentencing? Yeah, and that, that doesn't, doesn't... I mean, okay. Yeah, that's not okay. the way that goes. Go um, ahead. Go ahead and reply. I think it's in the statute. Nobody ever does it, but go ahead. Right, right. And, Finally. But, but, I will, but I will say one thing that I did, and this may be in your notes. I didn't read ahead on this. but um, <laughs> That's shocking. I know, right? It's, it is shocking. But um, there was always something in my um, trial outline uh, that came from a, an outline that I borrowed from somebody else and added to and made my own uh, from it. And it said, always take a break before issuing sentence. And, and I did that. Did, did you do that? I did not. Well, I'll tell you why I did it. 
because this is this is after trial. This is not in a negotiated plea, but I would take a break and I would call my clerk in to my chambers so that I could tell the clerk the sentence I was about to impose so that my clerk could fill out the sentencing form so that when we got back in the courtroom, we didn't have me imposing the sentence. And then the clerk saying, hey, I'm going to need five or 10 minutes to fill this form out. That's so, interesting. That's so, a good idea. So I would do it off the bench outside the presence of everybody else. I'd tell the clerk what to put on the form. And then we'd go back in there and I could issue sentence and the form's already ready. That's pretty smart. Yeah. All right. I hate to tell you that out loud that that was pretty smart. Oh, thank you. Smart. That's all right. I appreciate it. So that. finally, we get off this script we've been talking about. Now, all your little check boxes have been checked and marked and crossed through. And you get to personal preferences. Now, Tane and I have talked about this, but I think it's worth a conversation here on the podcast. Tane, on TV and on and on on movies, the judge gives this incredibly eloquent eloquent speech, or notifies the defendant that he is officially a dirt bag, or, or right. I just don't do that. Now, yeah. I might do it in a sentencing if I had a very young defendant that seemed super impressionable. And somebody I thought was engaged. If it's somebody that's going to do go do multiple life sentences and all that, I didn't feel the need to to vindicate anybody or point out any obvious collateral consequences of this person's conduct. Yeah, I just imposed a sentence. I the, the times that I generally gave what what might be called a speech at, at um, uh, you know when I was before I did sentence before I announced the sentence were cases where I said something that had a whole lot more to do with the victim than it did with the defendant. Yeah. Um, because I felt like, and it, again, it was just a judgment call on my, on my part, but I felt like I actually might could say something in that moment that would maybe alleviate, you know, some, some aggra not aggravation, but some anxiety that they would have going forward or say something along the lines of, you know what, I know, I know, I couldn't possibly know how horrible this is for you, but maybe this will give you some closure at this point, and and I certainly hope that you'll be able to move move on and not be defined by this moment, or you know, something along those lines. Because I felt like in that case, it might do some good. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of speeches. Some, I, I'll admit I did a few, uh, I've done a few. <laughs> under I mean, the, under the, under the right circumstances, as you said, some bad facts or some, you know, really egregious cases or, you know, as we tell our, uh, as we tell our, our judges, sometimes, um, the public sometimes wants to hear from you about important cases. And this is the only opportunity you have to say why things happened or why the sentence is appropriate that you're imposing. So it might be good to give some explanation. So now it's time to actually impose that sentence. We want you to be aware of a couple potential pitfalls. If the agreement that the parties have reached in the part of a plea is five in and five out, and there's multiple counts, but the first count has a maximum three-year sentence. It, you, it, we, we didn't become judges and lawyers because we we're awesome at math. Right. <laughs> And so go ahead and figure out, all right, count one's going to be concurrent to count two. That's going to be in confinement. This is going to be on probation, consecutive count four. And and, and that's another reason I take that pause that I was talking about. Because, again, I'm not that great at math. We've already talked about what the maximum sentences are. And I may need to do some calculations mm -hmm. to get to the sentence that I think is appropriate. So you go back there and kind of do some math on your calculator. And whether and whether it's following a trial, what Tane's talking about, or, follow, or as a part of a plea, what I'm talking about. I mean, feel free to make the lawyers do it. Right. I mean, you know, okay, five in, five out, first count, got a maximum sentence of three years. How are we getting there, guys? Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I have done that a lot. Well, yeah, and because as Wade's talking about, I mean, sometimes you don't you don't necessarily have to go in the order that it's indicted in sure. and doing your sentence. So you may say, on count five, I'm imposing a sentence of five years or of two years, and on you know count three, I'm imposing a sentence of three years. And, right, and, that and gets then on us count to five. one, 10 years probation yeah, exactly. to follow count two yeah. and yeah. whatever. Yeah. Any sense? Any sentence with the sex offense, Tane? It's been a minute since you've been a judge, but you know if it's not one of those life sentences, anything else that's a sex offense has to be <laughs> split. Yeah, it's one of those things we've often scratched our heads about. But there's this idea that you have to have at least one year of probation at the end of a sex offense. So, so if it's 20 years max, the sentence has to be at least 19 and one, right? Except in the cases where we have, yeah, where we have what, Wade, that we can't probate? Life sentence. Okay, so life sentence is the only exception to that. 
Ensure that you make sure that each offense is concurrent or consecutive to what other offense. Uh, again, that's back to that math problem we were talking about. Any fines that have required surcharges, I just ordered a fine in the amount of twelve hundred dollars with all applicable surcharges. Yeah. Did you go through each sur surcharge? Uh, no. Okay. No. Because there's about nine hundred. Exactly, and I didn't even know that I whether I would get them all right or not. Um, behavioral incentive date. Big one, guys. BID. BID. The bid. Important. And I'm going to tell you, this has been around for a long time, and people are still screwing it up yeah. every single day. Just understand, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but a behavioral incentive date is a thing out there that you that, have to do. That you have to do on the sentences where it um, applies. Right. And, and it's know. usually either on a first conviction or a first offender conviction. I mean, I'm, I'm overstating that, but that's generally what it is. That's right. And if, if there is a count or more than one count that must be ordered to be consecutive, like possession of firearm during commission of a crime. Right. Don't forget, it has to be consecutive. Right. Now, when you have two, when you have two possession of firearms commission of crime, somebody's got to be consecutive to somebody, right? And you can't be the consecutive consecutivist, <laughs> the mostest consecutive, the mostest consecutives. Yeah, All I right. think we're get, going down a, a deep dark hole here. All right, so Tane, you get a you get a case that involves probation, right? When you were sentencing, did you go through the the actual terms, or did you say the normal terms of probation? Uh, no, I actually went through the normal terms. I did too. Yeah, and I went through the numbers on the little form. Yeah, we we had a different form. Of course so, you did. You're yeah, Cobb County. Cobb County, everybody had for for 10 years while I was on the bench, everybody had a different form. And I finally, me, got them to agree to consolidate. It took about four months before right. everybody caved in. But anyway. But I would literally go like number I 25, the DNA sampling, number 15, the records release, et cetera. I would, I would do the same. Fourth Amendment waivers, if you're going to use them, they have to be acknowledged by the defendant. We have a form, but I also get counsel to put that on the record as a part of the back and forth. Agreed. Yeah, do the same thing. And it, it, the, the judge is required, and this is really important, to identify any special conditions of probation specifically on the record. And and there's a reason that that's really important, Wade. What, what, what can happen or not happen if you don't identify something as a special condition? If it's a special condition, you can violate. The, if, if there's a violation of it, you, right. can, you can revoke the entire balance of the sentence. If it's not identified as a special condition, it's just a general condition, you have a max of two years. Yeah, and we had a handful of general conditions in every case, and then I made a, uh, everything else special conditions of probation. <laughs> All right, there, you have specialized requirement if the case involves family violence. You have to do that family violence intervention program. That's paragraph 14 of the standard form, not the Cobb County form. Sex offender conditions, that's 26 and 27, depending on. And I would actually read them all. I did, too. And people didn't like it because it took a minute and also because they're kind of icky. Yeah, they are uh, icky. Yeah, too bad. And a plasmograph. I mean, that's a that's a hard <laughs> word to say. It is. And it's uh, not a word we use in everyday conversation. A DUI, it, you're not, if you have not regularly sentenced DUIs, you're not going to believe the number of conditions that you have to follow on a DUI. Or how high the fines are. Yeah, and then, how, I mean, there are more conditions on DUR that, DUI than there are on shooting somebody. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. And stalking, then, aggravated stalking. There's special conditions. That's number 28. And if there's street gang, uh, street gang probation, that's number 29. Yeah. And that's a really long list of things I would it read is. also. It is. So there's one more thing I think that saved me from a bunch of problems in the past. I asked, and then, so I've, I've imposed a sentence. I've kind of gotten through all my consecutives and concurrence and all my paragraph numbers. And I said, anything further from the state, anything further from the defense, anything further from the clerk, Anything further from probation. Let me tell you why. You have everybody there. If you forgot something or if concurrent and consecutive, if you don't stop and ask, is there anything else? You have the defendant in front of you. You can fix it right now. If you don't ask and everybody goes, well, I was kind of wondering what you were doing. Why didn't you say something? Well, right. you never really, you never really gave me an opportunity. Yeah. Okay. And people aren't really in inclined to interrupt you as a judge. No. So, yeah. Taking that five seconds. To ask each of the players in the in the process if they have anything else saves you a bunch, a bunch of headache. Oh, yeah. Finally, Tane, you get to notify the defendant of his or her probate, uh, habeas corpus statute of limitations. Yeah. And I, if it's after a conviction of appeal rights. Yeah. And I, I will tell you, I had those habe that habeas corpus statute on a printout that was actually a separate page at the end of my um, 
all of my trial notes, my, my uh, trial outline, I would pull it out of my notebook and have the bailiff hand it to the defendant and say, I am having the bailiff now hand you a copy of your rights under habeas corpus. You understand that they are, and I would summarize them. Right. And, and Four years for a felony, one year for misdemeanor, 180 days for traffic. Yeah. and and But they would actually get a... A piece of paper that they could take with them. So that's all for our uh, on our thoughts, I guess, on criminal sentencing uh, for today, Tang. Yeah, you'll note that we really address the process and the procedure more than our respective philosophies on sentencing. In fact, and I'm sure some of you got there and said, "That's it. You're not going to magically tell me how to sentence on you know X, Y, and Z." I'm not really sure how we can share our philosophies, and I'm using air quotes again without running afoul of prejudging cases. That's one of the the fine lines we walk here on the podcast. Yeah, it is. At least and for those of us who are still judges. It, it, it is. And I will tell you too, that my philosophy now that I'm retired, um, it evolved, you know, it evolved over time and maybe we'll get into that sometime. Maybe you can ask me some questions about my philosophies about that, but, but I will say that, that, yeah, I mean, things evolved over time. I, I thought some things were less important or more important. So anyway, we don't have time to get into that, but folks, if you have some or you want some information about this podcast including our outline and some of the citations please feel free to go to goodjudgepod.com and pick up that outline reach out to us with some of your ideas for topics and better ones if you didn't like this one at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and and, here we go this is the part of the show that everybody i know waits in breathless anticipation for and that is the end of the show trivia wade the music trivia so it's music trivia time, folks. We've been pleasantly surprised how some of you have actually let us know, as we asked you to do, that you actually listen to the music trivia section of this podcast at the end. And we appreciate that because Wade and I love music and, and love all kinds of things about music. And so, look, one disclaimer, these segments are as accurate as the Internet, which is our source is. So, hey, if we get something wrong, blame the Internet. So, OK, here we go with today's music trivia. We usually focus on a single artist or genre, but not today. If I asked you, Wade, to list the six highest-selling albums in the United States, what would your best guess look like? Now, remember, it's albums, not single CDs, and only in the United States. Pause this episode for a minute, folks, and as long as you're not driving, write down your list of the six best-selling albums of all time, and then come back and check out how accurate you were. Is there a Beatles album on the list? Will you tell me? How about Leonard Skinner and Journey? How about Garth Brooks? Maybe Madonna and Frank Sinatra? Come on, folks. I mean, they were all pretty popular. Take your guesses. Take your time. And then in a moment, once you resume playing the episode and all of our silliness, we will let you know. Back already? Wow, that was fast. Hope you didn't run off the road while you were writing it down. Anyway, here is the list starting from the sixth to the first. Number six, Fleetwood Mac Rumors, released in 1977. I mean, you know, that had to be on the list, right? You knew that was on there. Number five, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin IV, released in 1971. And Led Zeppelin's hard because like they never named their songs anything that had anything to do with the song nor their album. So anyway, hard to remember which one if it was one, two, three or four. Uh, then number four, and this one kind of surprised me. I got to tell you, ACDC Black, Back in Black released in 1980. I, I absolutely should have been on the list, but it was just wouldn't have been one of the ones that I would have thought. Number three. Of course, Eagles Hotel California had to be on the list uh, released in 1976. So You're not going to sing anything out of that? On a dark desert highway. Nice. Cool wind in my head. Sorry. Uh, so now, all right, we're down to the last two. This is pretty exciting. This is, this is a drum, we, we almost need a drum roll. I wish we had a drum roll. Okay, well, that'll do. <laughs> Just hit that a bunch of times. <laughs> all right. Um, I am willing to bet that most of you guessed wrong on which one is number one. But number two, best-selling album of all time, Michael Jackson, Thriller released in 1982. And now the most popular United States album of all time. That's all I got. That is a really lame uh, excuse for drum roll. But anyway, 
Eagles Greatest Hits, 1971 to 1975, released in 1976. Would never have been on my list. Would not have guessed that. You know what I would have guessed? What? That wasn't on this list at all. What? Carol King Tapestry. Worldwide, one of the greatest sellers of all time, but not United States. I was just looking for the cr- for the cricket sound sound there. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Well, anyway, folks, there you go. Top six best-selling albums in the United States of all time. You know what's cool about that? You know what era all of those albums fall in? The era when I was growing up and listening to the most music of my life. And it was the you greatest music era. That's what you just said. You know what? That's okay with me because I got some good music. Hey, there was no Taylor Swift. Thank God. All right. So, uh, <laughs> so wait. Anyway, thank you to our loyal listeners. Always great to have you here. Both we, of you. We, we will. Yeah. Good to see you, Christopher. Um, we will. We will see you guys on our next podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.